0: You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 2nd of February 2024 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. Ahead on today's programme...
1: The President and the Secretary have both raised our concerns with their Israeli and Palestinian counterparts about the level of violence in the West Bank and stressed that Israel must do more to stop violence against civilians.
0: Is the tide beginning to turn against Israel in the US? We'll have analysis of the latest news from the Middle East. We'll cross to Buenos Aires to hear about the new omnibus bill and the police crackdown on those protesting against it. And we'll hear how the Indian opposition coalition appears to be falling apart. We'll be in Tokyo, where digital nomads will soon be welcome as a new visa category is introduced. Plus...
2: Very often he said, don't act, uh, be, try to be in, in the situation. That was the challenge, to be.
0: We'll speak to the actor Christian Frieden, who takes the lead role in the film The Zone of Interest, which opens in cinemas today. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Georgina Godwin. The Biden administration has imposed sanctions on four Israeli men accused of perpetrating violence in the West Bank. Washington has also approved plans for a series of strikes on Iranian targets in Syria and Iraq after a drone attack killed three U.S. soldiers in Jordan, close to the Syrian border on Sunday. Well, Julie Norman is a lecturer in politics and international relations at University College London and co-director of UCL Centre on U.S. Politics. She joins me down the line now. Julie, many thanks for coming back on the programme. Can you give us details on the sanctions imposed on the four Israelis by Joe Biden personally?
3: Sure. So this is a pretty uh, notable move for the Biden administration in particular to sanction Israeli citizens, Israeli settlers. And the sanctions, uh, I understand, would be financial sanctions. And so Americans doing business um, with these individuals or vice versa, as well as travel sanctions. But really, they're more about symbolism for saying that The Biden administration is noticing what has been really escalating settler violence in the West Bank. Um, They feel that the Netanyahu government has not restrained that sufficiently. And this is one move that the U.S. feels they can do to nod uh, to that uh, issue and try and um, have some some leverage and some sway on it.
0: And is it unusual that this was made by executive order?
3: Um, I would say it it is unusual to see this kind of order at all, really, especially towards for, um, you know, individuals who are not, say, uh, you know, a high government or something like that, that you would kind of know about. So it's an unusual order to begin with. Um, And again, especially one for a president like Biden, who has been so um, strong with Israel. Uh, I would note that many in uh, from a Palestinian perspective have questioned why is it just for um, settlers who were uh, kind of identified from what many see as a much broader problem, much broader movement, where as many Israelis say, you know, why is the Biden administration uh, going after settlers at all, especially at a time like this? So a lot of mixed reactions in the region to this. And I would say in the United States as well.
0: Is it meant to send a message to Israel or is it targeted at Arab American voters in the U.S. just uh, ahead of the election?
3: Yeah, well, certainly a bit of both. And the timing, I think, uh, was not a coincidence that it came right before Biden was traveling to the U.S. state of Michigan, which is uh, one of the states with the largest uh, population and concentration of Arab Americans, many of who have been very vocal about saying they do not plan to support Biden and are actually going to campaign um, you know, essentially against, uh, against him for this next election because of his stance on Gaza and his support for Israel. So I do think this was timed specifically to try and be a gesture to that community right before Biden traveled there. What more
0: can you tell us about the planned strikes on Iranian targets in Iraq and Syria?
3: Yeah, so these um, are strikes that are expected to um, happen relatively soon, I would imagine, in response to the deaths of three American service members at a base in northeast Jordan that occurred um, earlier this week. The administration has really been trying to, I would say, walk a tightrope in how they respond to this with a response that is— forceful and acts as a deterrent, but not so forceful that it galvanizes the region into more chaos and, and more war and escalation. So there were a couple of different options on the table. What i assuming they are planning to do now is to probably target some Iranian assets, but those that are located in Iraq and Syria and are more directly linked to the armed groups carrying out the attacks rather than anything within Iran's borders, and will likely take place um, kind of over a series of strikes and incidents rather than a one-off. So these will be, again, somewhat carefully calibrated to try and avoid that quick escalation.
0: Uh, And how is escalation avoided? Surely this amplifies risk of regional contagion.
3: Well, it absolutely does. And I would say what the U.S. and uh, I would note to Iran have been trying to avoid is a direct head to head confrontation between the two states themselves. Um, Iran has been content to have this play out through many of um groups who have their backing. Um, And the U.S., again, up till now, has been pretty much having their strikes back on those groups, too. Again, this probably will more target um, Iranian um, positions, but not Iran itself. And so that's kind of where that calibration happens. So saying, OK, there's a pushback, but uh, but not within those borders. Yeah.
0: We understand that US, Egyptian and Qatari mediators met with Israeli intelligence officials in Paris on Sunday with a new ceasefire proposal.
3: Do we know what was in that? Yeah, so this, I think, will actually be, uh, if anything, actually de-escalates things in the region, it will be if this deal goes through. Um, This is a a deal that still has some ways to go, but would essentially be a phased release of hostages, starting with the remaining civilians and then moving on to um, to military personnel. um, And in exchange for what Hamas, I think, would frame as a Ceasefire, at least a temporary ceasefire, Israel probably see more as a pause, but it probably would be a four to six week um, break, at least in the fighting um, and would at least open a door to hopefully um, scaling down the operations and at least changing the course and nature of the war if it were to resume again. Um, right now, this is being um, considered by the different actors. Um, I would say it's closer to a deal than we've seen in months. Um, and so there's a lot of hope and I would say expectation around um, getting the details worked out and trying to see this move forward.
0: Although there was a statement from Hamas saying that they hadn't agreed to anything at all.
3: That's right. And so I would say this has to go through several different hands. Qatar then shares it with um, the political wing of Hamas. They then share it with um, Hamas operatives in Gaza and kind of moves back back and forth. Um, For Hamas, the key for them is to try and get a ceasefire and ideally a permanent ceasefire. Israel, of course, wants to leave open the door for continued operations even after this um, pause to continue their their operations against Hamas. So that's where the real tension, I think, is going to be, as well as the tricky details there always are in terms of of timing, of of ratio of releases, and those kinds of things. Um, But at this point, um, I would say Hamas seems to be considering it um, and trying to see how much they can leverage a more long-term ceasefire out of it.
0: And if the US can deliver a ceasefire in conjunction with others, Egypt and Qatar, uh, could this have a a positive effect on Joe Biden's re-election campaign?
3: So I think it would first and foremost just be so necessary for the region right now and would really be, again, the linchpin to de-escalate much of the other uh, uh, um, problems that we're seeing right now in the Middle East that are that are hurting his campaign and, and as, as much as, uh, as hurting the region. Um, in terms of his actual campaign, I would say it certainly um, will help. I don't think, uh, again, many voters who have already change their vote over Biden. I think that ship has sailed, so to speak. I think many who feel aggrieved by um, his support for Israel um, uh, and uh, and what they see is um, not enough attention to Palestinian suffering that that probably will not make up for it at this point. Um, And for other voters, I think they're going to be looking more at domestic issues. But with that said, not having an ongoing war in the Middle East, not having escalation, that can only help a president rather than hurt during an election year.
0: Julie, thank you very much indeed. That was Julie Norman. Now here's Vincent McIverney with the day's other news headlines.
3: Thanks,
4: Georgina. Former Malaysian Prime Minister Najib Razak's jail term for corruption and money laundering has been cut from 12 to six years. Razak was imprisoned in 2022 for his role in the 1MBD scandal in which a sovereign wealth fund was systematically embezzled. Farmers have blocked several border crossings between Belgium and the Netherlands as part of ongoing protests over cheap food imports, regulations and rising costs. Agricultural workers are holding similar demonstrations across Europe, including in France, Germany and Poland. At least three people have been killed and nearly 300 injured in a huge blast in Nairobi. A lorry carrying gas exploded in the Kenyan capital late on Thursday night, setting on fire nearby houses, businesses and cars. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Georgina.
0: Thanks, Vincent. Last night, Argentina's security forces cracked down violently on demonstrators outside Congress in Buenos Aires who were protesting against President Javier Millet's reform package known as the Omnibus Bill. Well, Juan Decima is an editor for the Buenos Aires Herald and joins me down the line now. Juan, what's in this Omnibus Bill?
5: Uh, hello, uh, Georgina, thank you for having me. So, um, the omnibus bill was uh, presented last December as a broad uh, de- economic deregulation package aimed at what Millet said was opening up the economy. And uh, It originally had a declaration of state emergency on a number of issues and also was a requirement to grant the president legislative powers in, in these areas. There was also a very long list, around forty company, state-owned companies that the press, that the government intended to privatize, and there was also a vast number of provisions that intended to um, curve uh, install, shall we say, new new uh, pro- protocols for protests. Also, there was a curm in environmental law. It was a very very vast package. It was an originally six hundred and 64 articles what the government called the basis for a new prosperous and free argentina that has now been of course through these last sessions that has been curtailed and is now currently at 366 articles because in the negotiations and the government's efforts to get it approved some of the more shall we say um uh Po- polemic uh, articles have been removed so and negotiations are still ongoing for some of those things
0: and so what what remain the main sticking points
5: so the main sticking points uh, that are being negotiated as we speak are basically two one of them as the before mentioned is the privatization of companies the original list of 40 was originally uh, docked down to 36 and after last night negotiations there were the list stands at 27. What is what appears what is going to happen is that the bill might be approved as a whole, but then each article will get uh, voted on, particularly, and that will the destiny of these companies will be des- will be defined at that moment. The other point that is also sticking uh, is the delegation of legislative powers. Millet had originally asked for legislative powers in eleven areas. At the moment, the Congress is agreeing to only give it to him in five areas – I'm sorry, six areas – economic, financial, security, tariff, energy, and administrative matters.
0: And uh, who is opposing this?
5: So the hard opposition to uh, Millet's uh, proposals in Congress is the Unión por la Patria bloc, which is the party of the previous uh, government, and the uh, of course and the leftist uh, sectors; those are the hard opposition. Those are the ones who have said that they will vote no on the approval of the bill and on any other article they want to debate after that. And then uh, that's the that that would be your hard negatives. And then for every sector, of course, there are some sectors that will vote positive for everything. But then again, these sticking points are what are kind of splintering Congress because people there's there's a number of votes that will vote positive for anything. And then there's about a hundred votes that will vote negative on anything. Mm-hmm. And in the middle is this gray area of people who, of, of deputies who will vote for uh, certain, reg, certain deregulations, certain uh, measures to kind of uh, alleviate tax burdens and, and, and whatnot, but are very firm on not, uh, shall we say, giving away state-owned companies or not not allowing environmental laws to be entirely broken so you have a kind of a split division there
0: and tell us about the protests who was on the streets and how did they make their, their displeasure known we know that there was a, a big police reaction
5: yes yeah, so uh, there, was, there were there were actually marches and protests both days wednesday wednesday there was a, there was a very big protest wednesday also uh, uh, six people were arrested uh, on Wednesday night. Yesterday, there was also another march. Uh, basically, there w- there were uh, political and social organizations, leftist parties, social organizations, who basically um, were in the square in front of where Congress is sessioning. Uh, from what we can recount, uh, sometime in the afternoon, the police, uh, there was there was federal police, military police, uh, started. Uh, advancing to trying to uh, clear the area. Uh, there, uh, there is a uh, new anti-protest protocol that has been in place by this government, which, uh, among other provisions, states that you cannot uh, cut a road uh, during a manifestation or a protest. It's not clear at this point if the people were actually uh, blocking a road. The, the, the fact of the matter is that the government or the police security forces, excuse me, advanced and started using water cannons, uh, rubber bullets, and tear gas against uh, protesters. Uh, at least tw- at least in addition to uh, um, people who were, who were injured, we have at least a list of uh, journalists who were at least 25 journalists were, ju- were injured uh, during the, the, the incidents, according to journalist Union Cipreva um at and at the moment, uh things are now clear, but last night uh things were uh pretty hectic
0: mm. And just finally, Juan, when can we expect this bill to be signed off or not, as the case may be?
5: so um what the way the way things sit right now, there is expected to be a general vote uh Friday afternoon, which which now it's nine fifteen here, so in about. Uh, six or seven hours. They expect there's still 30 voters. Uh, st- sorry, 30 speakers left uh, on the docket in Congress. So we might we're going to going to have a vote on the general approval of the bill sometime this afternoon. After that, there becomes the debate on every article individually, and that could uh, go on for a number of days. They're talking about maybe sometime next week hopefully Tuesday when we can have a final end to this, but it's still a little early to say when that will happen.
0: Juan Decima in Buenos Aires, thank you very much indeed. This is The Briefing on Monocle Radio. are back with The Briefing on Monocle Radio. A national election is expected in India in April or May. For the first time, a new coalition of over 20 opposition parties, the Indian National Developmental Inclusive Alliance, or India, which was formed in July, plans to challenge Narendra Modi's ruling BJP. But now, it appears, the group is in disarray following an arrest and a defection. Well, Gilles Vernier is a visiting assistant professor of political science at Amherst College and a scholar of Indian politics, and joins me on the line now. Gilles, tell us about... Uh, the opposition coalition, India.
6: Well, as you mentioned, the coalition was formed uh, a little less than six months um, ago to uh, counter the BJP, which has enjoyed unprecedented dominance uh, in in national politics. But over the last six months, uh, the, the parties. Uh, part of this coalition have uh, struggled to come together with uh, a common program or even a narrative to to counter um, the BJP. And the BJP, in the meantime, has been busy going after um, prominent members of this coalition one by one, using the states and using uh, state institutions to go after leaders of uh, opposition parties, which, of course, hasn't helped uh, the coalition to stick together.
0: Mm. So, I mean, where does it leave the opposition when it comes to contesting the election?
6: Well, currently, it is in disarray because uh, major regional figures uh, of uh, this uh, coalition have uh, already announced that uh, they would not go into seat-sharing agreements with the Congress Party, that they would focus on their own a regional uh, state, um, which send the signal that the coalition isn't uh, working or isn't getting you know, whipped up into uh, a singular force uh, to oppose uh, the BJP.
0: So, I mean, is it mostly to do with the main opposition, the Congress Party?
6: Well, yes, because the Congress has an uneasy status within that coalition. It is India's second largest party. It is the only other uh, national party after uh, the BJP. But it is also a party that has been uh, over the past uh, decade in uh, serious decline, and so it's difficult for the Congress to take uh, a position of leadership with regional parties who tend to be much stronger uh, than it is within their responsible within their uh, respective. Uh, states and 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 the old idea the old configuration of coalition where a national party would take the center and 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 where regional parties would be satellite um, no longer work uh, given the uh, declining status of the Congress party
0: and how much support then does Narendra Modi and the BJP have <sighs>
6: Well, it's not an easy um, question to answer because in terms of popular support uh, Narendra Modi is reputed to be one of the most popular leaders uh worldwide when you know Joe Biden is at 40% of approval rate where Emmanuel Macron in France is at 20% he's at you know below he has levels you know above 70 75%. That however does not necessarily translate into similar level of support for his party the Bharatiya B- B- Janata Party which remains a uh, a party under the bar of 40% in in, in national uh, election but uh, the party is and Narendra Modi are sufficiently popular in uh, the populous north uh, of the country that it's enough to translate that minority of support into uh, a majority in, in, in parliament. Mm. And of course, the fragmentation of the opposition helps in that regard, given India's electoral system.
0: So um, we saw this big opening of the temple that was widely believed to be the, the sort of uh, um, opening gambit, if you like, of, of campaigning. Do we know exactly when the, the election is taking place? And and is, is it now in earnest, all, all, all this campaign talk?
6: Well, the uh, the, 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 the election calendar should be announced uh, pretty soon because, you know, the Lok Sabha comes to term uh, end end of May and and it will have to be, uh, the election will have to take place uh, at at the same time uh, around the end of April, early May. Uh, So we are expecting uh, an announcement uh, very soon. But it is true that the inauguration or rather consecration of the Ram Temple in Ayodhya has uh, served as a, uh, a signal that the BJP campaign was in full-fledged. But in all honesty, Prime Minister Modi and the BJP is a leader and a party that are permanently in campaign mode. Um, so this was not exactly the beginning of the campaign. They've been campaigning from the moment they've uh,
0: taken office. Mm. And finally, I mean, do you think that the opposition can get themselves together before the election?
6: In current situation, it's hard to see how they will uh, reverse uh, the the situation of disarray uh, and decomposition in which they're uh, in. Uh, they would have to happen something really really dramatic to uh, sort of change their uh, change their their fate. But now, with the departure of Nitish Kumar, a prominent uh, figure in in northern India in the state of Bihar, the judicial troubles of uh, Arvind Kejewal in Delhi and Hemansur in, 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 in Jokhand and sort of position of withdrawal of uh, major leaders, uh, regional leaders in West Bengal and Tamil Nadu. It's very hard to see how they're going to reverse the situation.
0: Gilles, thank you very much indeed. That's Gilles Vernier. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. good news for some digital nomads who'll be able to get visas to work remotely from Japan from the end of March. Tokyo-based author and journalist Tim Horniak can tell us more. Tim, how does this visa scheme work? Who's eligible?
1: So basically the uh, people that are eligible for this uh, visa have to show that they have an income of about 10 million yen, which is roughly uh, 68,000 US dollars or 53,000 pounds. They have to come from one of uh, about fifty countries and territories with which Japan has tax or short-term, short-term visa uh, treaties, and they have to show some other requirements, like um, that they have private health insurance and that they have a you know a contract to do work. So if they can prove all that, they can come and stay in Japan for six months. And this scheme is slated to start around the end of March.
0: Uh, and it's to show that they can do work, but not in Japan. They're just based there working elsewhere.
1: That's right, yeah. You're a digital nomad. You have an employer in another country. And you're in that sort of host country to enjoy the lifestyle there while you're working for uh, an entity overseas. Mm. So do you
0: think this is the beginning of Japan, which is a famously insular country, opening up to immigration?
1: Japan has been opening up uh, the door a little bit. Uh, It's recently uh, added new categories of workers for eligible visas. Uh, For example, workers who can uh, drive trucks, uh, this kind of thing, because... The population uh, here in Japan has been in decline since around 2008, and there's a shortage of workers. So, uh, the the government is perhaps uh, you know grudgingly opening the door a few cracks uh, every few months to let more people in, and then the, this digital nomad visa is the latest example of that.
0: So Portugal is another country where digital nomads were encouraged, but it led to rising prices and a shortage of accommodation. How is Japan making sure that they don't face the same negative impact?
1: I think it's uh, early days uh, for that. Uh, I think um, Japan is already facing uh, issues with over-tourism. Tourism Tourism has rebounded sharply uh, last year. And some municipalities are are struggling. That they've introduced things like a you know a fee for climbing Mount Fuji. Uh, so the thing that they will have to do is. Uh, have these digital nomads sort of distributed more or less evenly throughout the country. If they're all focused here in Tokyo, it's just going to, uh, as you say, drive prices up a little bit more maybe for some things. And uh, they might be squeezed for things like accommodation because um, they're not allowed to get uh, a residence permit like other people living here. So that makes it hard to get an apartment, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it's going to be a combination of factors that uh, will help it balance out with uh, local residents
0: tim thank you very much indeed that's tim horniak and this is the briefing the new film from the beloved filmmakers filmmaker jonathan glazer the zone of interest is out in cinemas today Loosely based on the Martin Amos novel of the same name, the film is set towards the end of the Second World War around the Auschwitz-Birkenau concentration camp in Poland. It follows camp commandant Rudolf Hurs and his wife Hedwig as they build an idyllic life for their family next to the horrors of Auschwitz. Monocle's Robert Bound spoke to Christian Friedel who plays the lead role ahead of the film's release. He began by asking how he prepared for the role.
2: It was a really different than other movies because Jonathan and his team, they did a really great investigation and preparation for this. And we had a lot of conversations together, together with my lovely colleague uh, Sandra. And I think this was the most important thing for me to create this character. It was not so necessary to read the whole biography or something. Mm. I listened to his voice from the Nuremberg Tri. You can hear him at YouTube, and it's not the voice of commandant in his prime, it's more a voice of a prisoner, but it was, maybe this could be the real Rudolf Huss, we don't know Mm -hmm. it, but it was interesting to hear that. And then I had some technical preparations for this role, for example, to learn horseback riding or to gain weight and lose weight for different parts of the movie and and then it was more to be spontaneous in a way because Jonathan invites us to to search for the truth for the banality for these ordinary life what could be what situations we are in and it was more yeah it was more a search and for me Jonathan shares his vision very early he was very transparent from the beginning and i think this was for me the most important key or door opener to this character yeah i mean it's it's amazing you talk christian
4: about the sort of it's be, you know it's a phrase that's often used the banality of of evil but there's something just sort of super ordinary about this family man his family life with this awful death factory next door that he sort of you know, whistle go you know, he puts his hat on and whistles his way to work as he goes. It's 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 an amazingly unnerving performance that you, you hold together so so precisely. And what was that like working with Jonathan Glazer on set? I understand that a sort of set was built right next to in Poland you know it was geographically accurate and all the rest of it using lots of different cameras and some really interesting on set t- techniques and reading around the subject a little bit what was it like on set you know acting so naturalistically with sandra and the rest of the cast for
2: me this was an experience i will never forget it was an inspiring experience too because to working with a multi-camera system and jonathan described it very often big brother in a nazi house mm-hmm. And and that was really great because there were no technical interruptions or something. And Jonathan and his team were in a trailer outside of the set, next to the set, with 10 monitors, and it was really amazing. And to be alone on set and to be alone in this house and to have all the time in the world to create the situations or to find the right tone or to have the freedom to make variations or improvisations to get into the right mood, that was really, really amazing. And Jonathan invites us to create variations, to sometimes it's better not to know so much about what's going on, to feel free, to to trust your instincts. And then we had the run-through from the whole scene and sometimes there were someone who yelling cut and then but sometimes not. Sometimes we had a run through from an hour, for example, and we decided for ourselves when we start again or what we are doing now, or so. And that was really amazing. And then, if there were someone calling, uh, yelling cut, then Jonathan came to us and talked to us, and um, yeah. And sometimes he gave us really inspiring sentences and, and said please search here for this or think about that and and very often he said don't act uh, be try to be mm-hmm. in in the situation that was the challenge to be because the cameras observe the characters and not follow them in the conventional way
0: that was christian friedel who plays Rudolf hearse in the zone of interest speaking to robert bound you can hear their full conversation on this week's edition of monocle on culture and that's all for this edition of the briefing which was produced by lillian Fawcett and vincent mcaveney our researcher was neoma and our studio manager was tamsin howard the briefing is back on monday at the same time I'm Georgina Godwin. Goodbye and thanks for listening.